Welcome. You're listening to The Sanctuary Podcast with Pastor Tullian Chavidjan. If you'd like to learn more about The Sanctuary, visit our website, thesanctuaryjupiter.com. I've uh, said throughout this series that the Sermon on the Mount is not a ladder that we climb to get more of God's love and more of God's blessings. Rather, it's a merciful wall that we crash into so that we'll finally admit that we can't be everything we need to be. That's what it is. The way I was taught it growing up and the way I understood it, even as a young man, was that this is a goal to reach. The Sermon on the Mount is a goal to reach. It's a ladder to climb. And the higher we go, the more of God's love and the more of God's blessings we get. But it's not a ladder that we climb. It's a wall that we crash into, a merciful wall. And I call it a merciful wall because when we crash into it, we finally admit that we can't be everything we need to be. And when we can finally admit that we can't be everything we need to be, we look to the one who was for us what we could never be for ourselves. See, it highlights, the Sermon on the Mount highlights the tension that exists between what I actually am and what I should be or who I need to be. In other words, the primary purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to expose us, to unmask us, to show us our need. Because I'm telling you right now, and this was true for me for many years, if we insist on believing that we are good and strong and self-sufficient, then Christianity will have zero appeal to us. No appeal whatsoever. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' Sermon on the Ten Commandments, and the whole goal of God's law is to expose the fact that none of us are not in need of grace. None of us. We all need grace because we fail. We all need grace because we lie, because we hide things, because we get mad when we don't get our way, because we gossip, because we're impatient, because we're not thankful, because we're selfish, because we hold grudges and refuse to forgive. We all need grace because we're proud, because we do the right things for the wrong reasons, because we use people, because we're controlling, because we're manipulative, because we're greedy, because we're bothered more by other people's sin than our own. So the mission of the Sermon on the Mount is to reveal that we all need grace, that none of us are who we should be. None of us are um, everything that we need to be. And the reason that this makes us feel uncomfortable, at least it makes me feel uncomfortable sometimes, and I've had conversations with handfuls of people over the years, and this idea of scandalous grace, the grace that we can't live without, it it makes us feel uncomfortable because we tend to build our identity on being good and right and strong. So when God's law exposes the fact that none of us are good and none of us are right and none of us are strong, then, then we're offended, We're offended by that because the truth is, if you're afraid to let anyone see your weakness, what it means is that you've built your identity on being strong. If you're, if you can't admit that you're bad, it means you've built your identity on, on being good. If, if you get defensive every time you're corrected, it reveals that you've built your identity on being right. And so the Sermon on the Mount, it forces an identity crisis It exposes all of those non-gods that we build our life on, those places where we unconsciously anchor our worth and our value and our significance and those sorts of things. It strips us of all of our fig leaves so that we feel naked because it's only when the fig leaves of our own righteousness are replaced with the cloak of Jesus's righteousness that we will be truly free. And so the Sermon on the Mount's ultimate mission is to set us free. 
to set us free from the slavish need to perform for God and others, to to set us free from the delusion that we are self-sufficient, to set us free from the pressure we feel to always be strong and to always be right. God's demand is perfection. We've seen that. So that means that nothing short of absolute flawlessness will do. God only accepts, he only receives perfection. Well, if that's true, and none of us are perfect, then that creates a problem. It creates a need that we can't meet on our own. And because God's demands are unqualified and undiluted, the grace we need must be unqualified and undiluted. But the good news is that the God who makes the demand for perfection also meets the demand of perfection for us in the person and work of Jesus. This is why our only hope comes from Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5 where he said, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That was the rap on Jesus. The religious leaders were uh, frustrated with him because he seemed to be nice to all the wrong people. He seemed to love all the wrong people. Uh, According to his critics, as Mike Iaconelli said, Jesus did God all wrong. He went to the wrong places. He hung out with the wrong people. He said the wrong things. Um, And so the rap on Jesus was, uh, from the religious leaders, was that he was soft on God's law, that he, he swept God's expectations and God's demands under the rug, that he lowered the bar, but that's actually not true at all. In this, in this sermon, he, he heightens the bar. He shows that God's demands reach beyond outer behavior and it reaches down into the heart, feelings, thoughts, motivations, and things like that. So when Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. It needs to be fulfilled. And I'm the one who can do it. I'm the only one who can do it. Um, Our relationship with God can only be perfectly unconditional because Jesus kept all of God's perfect conditions for us. That's why we can be accepted as righteous and as perfect as Jesus because everything that he did gets deposited into our bankrupt account. So God relates to us. God the Father relates to us the way he relates to God the Son. We are accepted, approved, loved forever. That's why I say all the time that God's love for us is not dependent on what we do or what we don't do. It's not dependent on if we're being nice or if we're being good. Um, It's not dependent on if we fail, if we screw up, if we blow it. And the reason God's love is not dependent on what we do is because it's ultimately dependent on what's been done for us. That's why God's love is unwavering. That's why it's unconditional. Uh, That's why Paul, the Apostle Paul, at the end of Romans 8, is able to say, nothing can separate you from God's love. Nothing. You think that all of your good deeds impress God and make him love you more? That's not true. You think that all of your failures make God love you less? That's not true. And the reason that Paul can say, nothing can separate you from God's love, nothing in heaven and nothing on earth, is because God's love for us is ultimately dependent on what Jesus has done for us. For us. I've often said that one of the... One of the best ways to describe the gospel, the good news, is with those two words, for us. Because Christianity isn't really about our transformation. Christianity is ultimately about Jesus's substitution, his work for us. Um, And in these verses that I just read, Jesus exposes the futility of what I call salvation by recognition, 
I love the way that Eugene Peterson translates this passage in the message. He says this, be especially careful when you are trying to be good so that you don't make a performance out of it. It might be good theater, but the God who made you won't be applauding. When you do something for someone else, don't call attention to yourself. You've seen them in action. I'm sure play actors, I call them treating prayer meetings and street corners alike as a stage, acting compassionate as long as someone is watching, playing to the crowds. They get applause, true, but that's all they get. Notice the behaviors that Jesus identifies and points out. They're not bad behaviors. In fact, he talks about things like doing good, praying, being compassionate, loving other people, He's exposing us for doing what appears to be right for the wrong reasons. He's showing us that what comes natural to us is trying to find significance in getting attention. And we're all guilty of this in some very conscious ways and some very unconscious ways. Here are some ways we do that. We fish for compliments by subtly pointing out our achievements Being controversial to provoke a reaction, a shock jock, a lot of that. Criticizing yourself, this is one one that I think we're probably all guilty of to some degree. Criticizing yourself so that others will correct you and tell you how great you are. Exaggerating and embellishing stories to, to gain praise. Here's another one. Constantly complaining or saying how hard your life is in order to gain sympathy and pity, in order for people to go, oh, I feel so sorry for you. Downplaying your beauty or your success so that people will tell you how beautiful and successful you are. Pretending to be able to do something that no one else can. That last one brought to mind a childhood friend by the name of Brad Reifenberg. Have I ever told you about Brad Reifenberg? Stacy's laughing because she's heard all the Brad Reifenberg stories. So Brad Reifenberg was a, uh, I don't know, maybe 10 or 11 at the time. My brother Arm and I would always go out back and fish. I was probably 13. Arm was probably 10 or 11. And one day when we were fishing, we happened to see from across the lake uh, a boy that was about our age. And so we called out to him and he came over to our side of the lake and we started fishing together. And from the moment we met him, now we were just small, but from the moment we met him, he was telling us how great he was. Uh, He told us he had gone to fishing school so he could catch all the fish in the lake. Uh, And believe it or not, Arm and I bought this hook, line, and sinker. I mean, we, we thought we encountered the greatest man who ever lived in this boy, Brad Reifenberg. Um, and there was, we had a, we had a bunch of really tall pine trees, uh, in the back of our yard. And we were looking at them one day and Brad said, you know, I can climb to the top of that tree. And we were like, there's no way you can climb to the top of that tree. I mean, it's like 40 feet high. It's like, no, I can climb to the top. I went to tree climbing school. (laughs) We believed it. Sure enough, that kid scaled up to the top of that tree, and we're like, oh my gosh, Brad Reifenberg climbed to the top of the tree. As soon as he got up top, he started screaming, crying, and wailing, and saying, help, help, I never went to tree climbing school. My mom literally had to call the fire department to come get the kid out of the tree. If that wasn't enough, about two or three weeks later, uh, I, was, I was needing to bring my bike in to the bike shop to get it fixed. 
And Brad uh, very proudly told me, I, I, you don't need to bring it to the bike shop. I can fix the bike. I went to bike fix at school. Okay, the kid's 11 years old. I believed him, idiot that I was. I believed him. So he proceeded to take my entire bike apart. I mean, in every imaginable piece, okay? Uh, and he said, I'll be back tomorrow to fix it. He never came back. So about four days later, he came home and I was, he came back to our home and I said, Brad, when are you gonna fix my bike? He started crying in our garage and he said, I lied, I never went to bike fix at school. Now, those are exaggerated stories of the ways that we, we do this, but oftentimes we pretend to be able to do something that no one else can or or we embellish our abilities because we want to impress people, because we want people's attention, we want recognition from them, we want validation. Those are some sort of crass ways in which we try to get attention, salvation by recognition, um, but it's the more refined ways, the more subtle ways that Jesus specifically addresses here. Things like this, being generous and selfless in order to be validated. It's always why super nice people have always kind of annoyed me, you know? I don't know if that's true for you. It's why, it's why I couldn't live in, I've lived in the South and there's a large portion of my family that comes from the South, the cultural South. Um, but I, it always annoyed me because everybody was just so nice all the time to the point where it didn't seem real. It seemed fake, disingenuous. I always looked at people like that with skepticism. If you're overly nice to me all the time, I'm not gonna believe you except for Rich. I will believe him because he is overly nice all the time and he means it. Um, but everybody else, okay? This is your invitation to be mean to me. I'll respect you more for it. I'm just kidding. Um, but seriously, being generous and selfless in order to be validated, being generous and selfless is a great thing. But oftentimes we do it subtly or unconsciously because we want to be validated. Serving all the time. So people say, wow, she's such a servant. Or wow, he's, he's so unselfish overworking so that people will say, wow, he's such a hard worker, or wow, she's got such a great work ethic. Using spiritual and pious language. Okay, this happens inside the church all the time. I've shared with you my disdain for people saying, brother, you know, I'm like, really? Uh, okay, you know, sort of overly Christianized language, spiritualized language. Um, I've been guilty of this so many times I lost count. I'll never forget a time that I was getting ready to speak to 15,000 college students. This was like 2012. At that time, the largest crowd I'd ever spoken to. 15,000 college students. And I was very active on Twitter in those days. Um, and I really wanted everybody to know that I was getting ready to speak to 15,000 college students. They might respect me more. They might think I'm, I might impress them with that. And so I got on Twitter and I said, please pray for me as I get ready to speak to 15,000 students, college students. Okay, now I didn't really care if people prayed for me or not. As sad and despicable as that sounds, what I really wanted was for people to know that I was getting ready to speak to 15,000 college students. That would impress them. I think I told you the story uh, a number of months ago about the time that I was, it was the Liberate Conference was a conference we used to host in Fort Lauderdale at the church that I used to serve. Every year we hosted this conference uh, and it was the highlight of the year. 
And people from all over the world, thousands of people from all over the world uh, came to Fort Lauderdale for the Liberate Conference, to our church for the Liberate Conference. And uh, the, I guess it was like the Tuesday, it always started on Thursday night, but the Tuesday before it started, I was walking through the sanctuaries, big, huge sanctuary. I was walking through the sanctuary and the, the cleaning crew was coming in later that afternoon uh, to clean up the sanctuary and get it ready for the conference. And as I was walking through, I noticed that uh, all the bulletins from Sunday were still on all the pews. No one was in the sanctuary. Nobody was in the building. Um, and I decided to walk row by row and pick up all of the bulletins, cleaning up the sanctuary. And I promise you, I hadn't picked up more than four bulletins before this thought crossed my mind. I'm doing a really good thing here, you know? I mean, I'm the senior pastor of this amazing place, and I'm cleaning up bulletins. And then I thought, I hope to God that a staff member or someone from our church walks in here right now to see me doing this. They will be so impressed with my servanthood. Okay, now, that's also a crass illustration, but it's something that I think, if we're really honest, we're guilty of doing on a regular basis in some really subtle ways, perhaps. Um, we instinctively grasp for recognition. This is what Jesus is addressing here. The futility of salvation by recognition. We instinctively do this. We, we want to be noticed for how good we are, how sweet we are, how generous we are, how smart we are, how competent we are, how beautiful we are. We want to be noticed for that stuff. We want attention for those things. We feel like we matter more if we are seen, and so we clamor for credit. If we do something good or right, we want to be noticed, or it feels incomplete. I think I also told you the story about the first men's retreat that we had when I was the pastor at Coral Ridge in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, that church hadn't had a men's retreat in years, and I was relatively new. I was the new pastor there. And I thought it would be a good thing for us to have a men's retreat for the men together of the church to get away and go somewhere. So it was my idea, and I sort of mapped out the way I wanted the weekend to feel and the way I wanted it to go. And then I passed it off to our men's ministry guy to sort of work out all the logistics and make it happen, which he did. So we all went. It was an amazing weekend in Marco Island. It was amazing. It was a really groundbreaking in a lot of ways for our church. Um, and at the end, our men's minister got up uh, to say thank you to the people who made it happen. And, uh, you know, he started with the speaker, thanking the speaker for coming to speak. And then he talked about his men's ministry team, each of the men on his men's ministry team, and talked about how hard they worked to make this happen. And I was sitting there just waiting for him, the grand finale, you know, to mention. And if it wasn't for the vision of our esteemed pastor and leader, Pastor Tullian, this would have never happened. So I'm sitting there sort of proudly waiting for my moment of recognition, and it never came. He never even mentioned my name. And I can remember sitting there. It's embarrassing to admit this stuff, uh, but I can remember sitting there feeling like, dude, what the heck, man? Like I got robbed. Like somehow, some way, I got robbed of the recognition that in that crass moment, I felt like I needed. Um, we do this. We do this all the time. But as you know, and as I've discovered, fighting to be noticed, fighting to be appreciated, fighting to be loved and affirmed and honored doesn't make life lighter. It makes life heavier, faster, 
more exhausting. We're always chasing after something we think we need in order to feel alive. Um, needing our opinions to win the day, our thoughts and our actions to carry the room, our reputations to get us ahead, our looks and personalities to get us love. All of these things burden us. They make life heavier. They make life harder. This is what Jesus is addressing here. He's ultimately wanting to set us free, to set us free from ourselves, to set us free from this burden that we put on our own shoulders. Life is harder, not easier, when we feel the pressure to get to the front, to be recognized, to be remembered, to leave a legacy, to win, to secure the spotlight, and those sorts of things. And we don't maybe do this in big, obvious ways, but we do it oftentimes in small, subtle ways. We still feel the pressure We feel the tension. We feel like we've missed out on something when we don't get noticed for something that we're proud of or recognized for something that we've done or who we are. Working hard to get noticed, to get credit, to get attention. It's just a, it's a terrible way to live. It's like a, it's like a drug that we end up depending on to feel alive, to feel like we matter, to feel significant and valuable. If you think that getting attention will make you feel valuable, then failing to get attention will make you feel worthless. In other words, if attention, recognition, being noticed, being applauded is something you you feel like you need to get in order to feel alive, then what happens when you don't get it? You feel crippled. You feel like a drug addict who desperately needs a fix. You feel that's why social media is so popular. It's a a drug that allows us to get the attention that we crave by how smart we are, how beautiful we are, how successful we are, all of those things. We're constantly competing with other humans to get in front, to get noticed, to get recognized, to become what we think we need to become in order to get love and affirmation. Um, and living this way just, just robs us of life. It's one more bankrupt attempt to save ourselves. Salvation by recognition. It's futile. It's bankrupt. This is why Jesus exposes it. He's exposing it so that we would see it in ourselves, not in everybody else necessarily, but first and foremost in ourselves that we would recognize our own tendency in this way. And the reason he wants to expose us and to unmask us and to show us that we are guilty of this is so that we would be set free from it. And that's, that's what the gospel does. The gospel sets us free from this slavish way of living because the gospel tells us that we are valuable because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we do. And that frees us to, to let go. It allows us to revel in our unimportance. There is something so freeing about knowing that our importance has been eternally secured by someone else so that we are dignified and valuable before God who ultimately matters. And that frees us to sort of revel in our unimportance here and now. 
We don't have to be the most important person in the room. We don't have to be the most beautiful person in the room. We don't have to be the smartest person in the room, the most capable, the most successful. We don't need that. All of our importance ultimately comes from the fact that God loves us. And when that grips our hearts, uh, we tend to feel the pressure less to secure those things for ourselves. Because your value is in the fact that God loves you and it's not dependent on your position, you are now free to give up your place for others instead of guarding in your place from others. We oftentimes do that. That if someone else uh, emerges that is as good as I am or better at what I do, what I'm noticed for, what I'm recognized for, we feel self-protective immediately. We want to guard in our place. We want to sort of protect ourselves from uh, looking like we are less than that person, not as capable, not as gifted. Um, Knowing that God's love for us is ultimately what makes us important, we are free to celebrate other people's gifts and successes. I mean, the gospel undercuts unhealthy competition. And if there is one thing that I've seen ruin relationships over the years, it's competition. Sucks the life right out of marriages, right out of relationships between parents and children, between siblings, between friends and coworkers, relationships that would otherwise thrive in an environment of grace and encouragement, uh, suffocate suffocate in the, in the ungraceness of competition, suffocates. Um, it just sucks the life out of relationships. But being quick to praise other people and encourage them may be one sign that the gospel has set us free. You know, it's pretty easy for me to encourage people that are really good at something I'm not good at. That's easy because I'm not competing with them. It's a little bit harder to praise and encourage people who are better than me at what I do or as good as me at what I do. Um, That makes encouragement a little bit harder. And when I find it hard to encourage, when I find it hard to praise other people's successes, especially when their successes match my successes, um, that exposes me to myself. It helps me to see, wow, the gospel needs to get in there deeper, It needs to be pressed in deeper that I believe, but I also don't believe. I talk about this stuff and I write about this stuff and I share this stuff and I believe this stuff. But in moments like that, I realize I don't believe. And I think that's true for all of us. Knowing we are loved by God no matter what liberates us to be overlooked by others because we will never be overlooked by God. And if I'm certain that I will never be overlooked by God, it'll be a little bit easier for me to be overlooked by you. A little bit easier. Won't be easy, but it may be a little bit easier. Knowing that our significance and our security is anchored in God's love for us, we no longer need to be noticed. We no longer need to clamor for credit. The gospel assures you that you've been forever loved and eternally noticed by a loving father and that liberates you to be unloved and unnoticed by others. You know, the, the pressure, as I've mentioned, the pressure to be noticed, the pressure to get credit, the pressure to get attention. And like Jesus in these verses 
make plain, we do this when it comes to good things. I want to be, be the best parent that I can be in front of people so that people go, wow, he's a really good dad. I want to be the best grandfather I can be in front of people because I want people to think he's a really good granddad. I want to be a hard worker, a good writer, a good preacher, all of those things that God has called me to do and summoned me to do. I want to be good at all of that stuff. And there's there's some real health there. I should be good. I should at least pursue the gifts that God has given me and continue to work those things out and to share those gifts with the world. But if I'm honest, I'd have to say that there, there is a part of me, because I'm a sinner still, and there's a part of me that, that mixed in with all of the good reasons why I want to do those things, there are some bad reasons too. I'm a, I'm a mixed bag, as we all are, mixed bags. I've said this before, um, and I've said it over the years, but one of the reasons, not all of the reasons, but one of the reasons that I work so hard to uh, prepare sermons and to preach is because at some level, conscious or unconscious, at some level, I feel way more valuable and way more important if people think I'm a good preacher. If they think I'm a good preacher, then I feel you know, like maybe I'm more valuable than I thought I was. Maybe I'm more important than I thought I was. Uh, you're not a preacher per se, but you do this in other ways. I do it. We do it. We all do it. Um, So the gospel assures you that because you've been forever loved and eternally noticed by God, you can can live with being unloved and, and unnoticed by other people. We don't need that drug anymore. We still use it and we'll use it till the day we die because we believe and we don't believe at the same time. John Calvin said that we are all partly unbelievers until we die. And he was speaking of Christians that there is a part of us that struggles to believe all of this stuff. And that struggle reveals itself in moments like this when we're we're looking for attention, when we're clamoring for credit, when we want sympathy, when we want pity, when we want people to notice our accomplishments, our successes, when we want people to tell us how beautiful we are or how strong we are or how smart we are or whatever the case may be. But the gospel frees us from the burden to get attention. It, it unburdens us from needing affirmation in order to feel important. All of the affirmation we need, all of the acceptance we need, all of the love we need, all of the attention we need is already ours. We get all of that stuff from God so that we don't have to try to get all of that stuff from everybody else. We no longer need to spend our lives trying to earn the approval and acceptance and affection of those around us because we already have God's approval, God's acceptance, God's affection. So the gospel sets us free from having to win, from having to get ahead, from having to seek recognition. We're we're free to disappear We're free to be forgotten, to be overlooked and unseen. There is an inordinate focus these days. I hear people talking about this all the time on wanting to leave a legacy, whatever that means. I was asked that question when Stacy and I first moved to Jupiter. I was asked that question uh, by a new friend, and he said, what do you want your legacy to be? And I I hate answering questions like that because I don't even know how to answer questions like that. You know, I could say the typical stuff like, well, I want my kids to say that I love them and I was there for them all the time. And I I didn't know what he was fishing for, but I said, you know, I don't even, I try not to even think about that because the more I think about the kind of legacy I want to leave, 
what happens? The more I think about my need to secure that legacy, to accomplish that legacy, to make sure that it happens. And that is just a burdensome way to live. I'll leave my legacy up to God. Whatever God wants it to be, I'm fine with. And if it's nothing more than he was a broken down sinner who screwed up, recognized his need for grace and pointed other people to that grace, I'm totally fine with that. Totally fine with that. And thanks to the internet, that probably will be the only legacy that I have. Um, and I'm okay. I'm, I'm actually okay with that. Um, if, if the only legacy I have is, gosh, this guy... I mean, my gosh, he was, he was a ragamuffin. He was frustrating to be around sometimes. He was rebellious. He never met a rule. He didn't want to break. And yet he knew that about himself. And he admitted that stuff about himself. And he recognized how much grace he needed and how much forgiveness he needed. I'm fine with that. If, if that's what leaving a legacy is all about, well, I've already accomplished that. I don't even have to work for that. Um, but this inordinate focus on, I want to leave a legacy. And I understand it's an, it's, it's, it's an admirable desire in one sense, because we're thinking about perhaps our families, our kids, grandkids, great grandkids, whatever the case may be. But I don't find it to be super healthy or life-giving to be fixated on the legacy I'm leaving. That's just another seemingly admirable way that we want to get attention that we want some sort of affirmation. Um, but only the gospel can cause us to rejoice and be glad in our expendability. Because Jesus was someone for you, you're free to be no one. You don't have to climb the corporate ladder. You don't have to, be, you don't have to win mom of the year award. You don't have to be uber successful. You don't have to uh, look great for your age. Uh, you don't have to ensure that your family's financial security is set for the next three generations. I mean, there's just, there is so much pressure to perform that we feel. There's just so much pressure that we feel. And these are the things that Jesus, as I mentioned, is identifying. Not the not the bad ways, you know? I mean, sort of, if, we're, if we take selfies all the time because we think we're handsome or we think we're strong or we think we're beautiful and we're posting it and it's just sort of a crass way of saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. That's not really what Jesus is talking about, although it includes that. What he's really talking about are the, the seemingly good religious ways in which we do this. Um, you know, we, we, we look down on people perhaps who aren't as spiritual as we are, who don't pray as well as we do, who aren't as disciplined as we are, who don't know as much about the Bible as we may know, um, you know, who, who don't show up at church on a Sunday when we lose an hour of sleep, you know, those sorts of things. Uh, we tend to look around the room and go, you know what? I mean, I may not be great, but I'm, I may not be a spiritual giant, okay, but but I'm, I'm more of a spiritual giant than him. I'm more of a spiritual giant than her. Uh, we do our acts of charity, our acts of compassion. This is what Jesus is addressing. We, we do these things oftentimes because we want to be noticed for it. And it's just an incredibly burdensome way to live. And only the gospel can cause us to be glad and to feel relief in our expendability. 
I mean, I, I cannot tell you. I know that there are tools out there that would help me come up with this information, but, but I cannot tell you the names of my great, 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 great grandparents. I can't tell you on either side. I can't tell you. I mean, that's however many generations back. Um, I mean, I, I hate to say this, but uh, we will be forgotten We will, all of us will be forgotten. It doesn't matter what kind of mark you've left in this world. Uh, We will be forgotten. And while that haunts a lot of people, it actually relieves me (laughs) when I think about it. Because the one person who we can't stomach to forget us is God, and he promises he can't. He can't. It's not just that he won't. Because of what Jesus has done for us and given to us, God can't forget us any more than he can forget Jesus. We are noticed as much as Jesus is noticed in the eyes of God the Father because of what's been done on our behalf, because of what Jesus has accomplished, because of the grace that we've been given. So only the gospel can cause us to be glad in our expendability because Jesus was someone As I said, we're free to be no one. That is freedom. Let's pray together. If you've enjoyed this message, be sure to subscribe to the Sanctuary Podcast. You can find it on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast.